Welcome to TopCast and for a spur-of-the-moment episode. I have a few others in the pipeline, but something came up today and I thought, well, this is worth talking about. I really wanted to take a deep dive on something I read superficially at first, but now with you, for the first time, I'm going to read this more carefully. I haven't written any notes. All I've done is see the article and skimmed through it and thought, when is this going to stop? And it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop until some people do something about it to push back. So here's my contribution to what I'm talking about. This article appeared today in Nature. Nature that a respected, or at least once respected, science journal. Now it is under what's called comment. So fair enough. Fair play to them. It's under the comment section. However, I don't know that the alternative perspective is often put, but we shall see. We shall see. What this is about is a topic that goes against the grain of everything we talk about here at TopCast. One is tempted to say everything here at TopCast. What's it about? It's about how degrowth can work. Here's how science can help. Okay, work for what? Now, what are they talking about? What problem or problems is degrowth going to solve? Well, I suppose we can guess, but rather than guess, let's, uh, let's actually see what they have to say. The subtitle is, wealthy countries can create prosperity while using less material and energy if they abandon economic growth as an objective. So we can create prosperity while using less materials and energy by abandoning economic growth. As an objective, what growth is about, fundamentally, the reason why we want economic growth, is because we want population growth. We want population growth because we want more people. We want more people because people are the very things that provide solutions to our problems. They're the creative thinkers. They're the inventors. They are the artists. They are the scientists. They are what gives meaning and richness to the world. More is better. Now, the more that the population increases, the more solutions we do in fact find. And history has shown that there has been nothing but an increase, an increase in the living standards of people today, across the world. People used to live in tribes. Does this need to be said? We were primitive once. We were struggling to eke out, to scratch an existence off this hostile planet. And through an increasing population, with a culture that came with traditions of criticism, the Enlightenment, scientific and philosophical, which only came to us because of the ideas of people, we were able to lift people out of poverty, reducing the number of people dying early from sickness and malnutrition, among other things, like the cold. This has happened, one way of framing this is because of growth. Growth in all ways. Growth in population, growth in the amount of energy we're using, growth in the amount of money and wealth that we are creating, the growth in the amount of knowledge and technology and rapid progress that we are making. All of this is growth. And one metric is economic growth. But it is impossible to decouple that, the economic growth, from knowledge growth, from technological growth, from the growth in health and wealth and wisdom of the world. These things just come together because wealth is a kind of knowledge. Wealth is the capacity to put into action to actually realise the potential that knowledge has. Knowledge has the potential to transform the world, whether it can or not, is determined utterly by whether or not you can afford to do the thing you know that needs to be done. We've got eight authors for this particular commentary piece. We've got one person who is a professor at the Institute of Environmental Science and Technology. The Institute of Environmental Science, okay. We've got a professor of ecological economics and political ecology. We've got a director of the Center for Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. We've got an associate professor of ecological economics. 
an economist and professor from the Department of Sociology, another professor of ecological economics, a professor of environmental studies, and a professor in the Department of Environmental Sciences. Let's just be clear. When they say ecological economics, what they're saying is socialism. What they're saying is ways to reduce the amount of profit that large corporations have. That's what they're talking about, the evils of profiteering, and so their entire worldview is shaped by how evil the business world is, how government should have central control of things, and ecological economics is a slippery way of saying, here's communism. Okay, it's a form of communism. We'll see this as we work through the article. But that's all they're talking about, is taking away the capacity of individuals and corporations to make decisions and instead placing it into the hands of central planners. Pure Marxism. So let's begin the article. And they write, The global economy is structured around growth. The idea that firms, industries and nations must increase production every year, regardless of whether it is needed. <laughs> this dynamic is driving climate change and ecological breakdown. High-income economies and the corporations and wealthy classes that dominate them are mainly responsible for this problem and consume energy and materials at sustainable rates, end quote. Okay, so this idea that firms, industry and nations it must increase productions every year, regardless of whether it is needed, is completely false. This is not what industries and firms do. They want, in part, to create solutions to problems, but also create, have a profit. Now, they're not going to artificially produce stuff if they're not planning on selling that stuff. They want to sell it so that they can get a return on investment. Creating more than what the market needs is completely antagonistic to that entire project. However, if you go to a communist nation, somewhere like China, they do in fact build building after building after building. This has famously occurred in recent times. These huge residential and office buildings in the middle of nowhere sometimes to give people work, but then no one lives in these things. And so they demolish them again, building and demolishing. That is a feature of communism. This precise problem of increasing productions every year, regardless of whether it is needed, is a feature of a place like China, where these kind of policies that are about to be prescribed for us are actually enacted. But they're saying that this is what happens under capitalism. It's just not true that this happens under capitalism. Under capitalism, you have supply and demand, and if you restrict supply, the price goes up. You don't flood the market with so much of your product that the price goes down and you no longer make a profit. That's not what you do. You make just enough. Ideally, you make just enough. And sometimes you make slightly more, sometimes you make slightly less than what the market needs, creating either demand or a little bit of a surplus so that the price goes down. But you don't want to have so much that you are producing regardless of whether it is needed, it's said there. That's simply false. Telling phrase there where they say, high-income economies and the corporations and wealthy classes that dominate them are mainly responsible for this problem. The main responsibility for the problem of climate change, insofar as it's anthropocentric, are not so much the wealthy classes. In fact, it is people being brought out of poverty, such as in places like China. I think good on these people for wanting to come out of poverty, by the way. However, it simply is the case, it simply is the case that they are burning more fossil fuels than anyone else. So if you want to put the blame for the anthropocentric contribution to climate change anywhere at all, you place it not at the wealthy classes, but the people who are trying to become wealthy, who are at the moment in poverty and using cheaper forms of energy. Now, I'm going to come back to that because I think, I think that everyone should have access to cheaper energy. The worst forms of energy are, of course, where people can't afford even to burn fossil fuels and are beginning to once again burn the primitive forms of fuel and energy like wood burning forests. That's not going to be good for the environment. That's not going to be good for people's health. So in terms of ecological breakdown, as they talk about there, 
places like Brazil and places like Africa where forests are being ripped down in order to drive industry, that's where this is going to happen. Now, I actually don't have a problem with ecological breakdown, but they do. If they are genuinely concerned, they're placing the blame in the wrong place. I don't think ecological breakdown is actually a problem. I don't think that climate change is the problem that people tend to think that it is. There are both benefits and disadvantages from climate change. Of course, this is taboo. To say that climate change would actually bring certain advantages to civilization is something that shouldn't be said. It's just one of those things that people get dismissed for saying. But I'm getting a little bit tired of the fact that the only opinions that are allowed on this, on this topic, are people who say not only is all of climate change anthropocentric, but the only way in order to deal with this is to tax people heavily and to engage in things like degrowth. Okay, so it, it, it's becoming ridiculous. Governments are turning to places like scientific journals. Scientific journals are publishing stuff like this. And so all one needs to say is, look, there's an article in the journal. Regardless of whether it's commentary or not, the politicians will take their cues from these experts. These are exp so-called expert opinions. Let's keep going. Quote, yet many industrialized countries are now struggling to grow their economies given economic convulsions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, resource scarcities, and stagnating productivity. Improvements. Governments face a difficult situation. Their attempts to stimulate growth clash with objectives to improve human well-being and reduce environmental damage, end quote. Yes, I tend to agree with some of that. For example, that governments face a difficult situation, a situation of their own making, because they have bought in entirely into the catastrophist mindset, this idea that the world is coming to an end and coming to an end quickly because of climate change, and the best we can do is to slow down the use of energy, slow down wealth creation, reduce the impact of people on planet Earth. All of this stuff stands in stark contrast, yes, to trying to create the conditions where people can flourish where they can reduce the rate of unemployment, where they can actually increase the profits that businesses make. These two things cannot happen simultaneously. This is obviously a contradiction. Policies on the one hand that seek to reduce growth and on the other hand seek to increase growth. So yes, governments face an impossible situation, you might say. But the reason why, at the beginning there, many industrialised countries are now struggling to grow their economies is purely because of the precise policies in nascent form that are prescribed here in this article that we're about to get to being implemented. The government's already implementing some of these to some degree. In particular, the migration away from cheap and reliable energy to renewables, which aren't proven to be able to, for example, power a city at night. How do we do that? How do we power a city at night with solar power and wind? With batteries? Okay, how many batteries precisely do we need on a cold winter's night for a place like New York? How is that possible? And yet, if you listen to certain politicians that are in power, this is the kind of thing they seem to be implying, that somehow we can get away entirely from fossil fuels. In Australia, it's more ridiculous still. We sit on a bed of coal that is second almost to nowhere else except maybe Russia and China. 
These vast reserves of coal that Australia sits upon are being exported, but apparently we don't want to use it. We are trying to reduce the amount of coal we are using. We are not building any more coal-fired power stations. We might very well go to nuclear because we have among the largest reserves of uranium on the planet as well. But we have a policy in this country because of successive governments saying they refuse to build nuclear power reactors, which leaves us only with solar and wind and the tiny little bit of hydro that we have in this country, whatever the case. One main reason industrialised countries are now struggling to grow their economies is precisely because of this imposition of policies which seek to tax people in wealthy countries in order to mitigate, supposedly, the effects of climate change, even though it is questionable as to whether any of those effects are actually occurring now, actually need to be mitigated right now. Are the sea levels rising to a point where they're flooding inland areas? No. However, every time there is some sort of natural disaster, it is being blamed upon climate change. If the temperature goes up, that's climate change. If the temperature goes down, that's climate change. If the winter is unusually cold, if the summer is unusually hot, or vice versa, it is said to be a symptom of climate change. If Australia has floods, that's regarded as climate change. If Australia has droughts, that's regarded as climate change. As if these things have never happened before, at the rate that they're happening now. They have. People only need to go to the historic records for this. Let's get going. Researchers in ecological economics call for a different approach. Degrowth. <laughs> Just pausing there. Ecological economic researchers in ecological economics. Okay, so avowed communists call for a different approach. Degrowth. Okay. Wealthy economies should abandon growth of gross domestic product, GDP as a goal, scale down destructive and unnecessary forms of production to reduce energy and material use, and focus economic activity around securing human needs and well-being. End quote. So what we're saying there is that we want central planning. After all, how can a wealthy economy abandon or scale, rather scale down destructive and unnecessary forms of production? Who decides what's destructive? Who decides what's unnecessary? Well, apparently the government will. And they'll go in and they'll tell industry, well, you are doing something unnecessary. You're engaging in an unnecessary form of production. What would unnecessary be? Well, according to these people, probably anything that isn't just the bare necessities of life. The absolute bare necessities of having a roof over your head and food to eat. Everything else is going to be unnecessary. That's a mere want that you have. You don't need to have the latest car or the latest computer or anything like that. No comforts, no luxuries, nothing like that. That's going to destroy the planet. So we're going to reduce production of those things. That will reduce the amount of energy and material use. Focus economic activity around securing human needs and well-being. We've already secured human needs in the West. People are not starving in the West. They have abundance, and this is a great thing. And this, this abundance is what secures human well-being, not the reduction in these things. The perfect way to eliminate human well-being, to reduce it to its lowest ebb, is to engage in degrowth. That's the perfect way to do it. To not give people access to cheap, reliable electricity. To make their electricity bills go up so they can't afford to pay for anything else. This is a great way to stress people out make them worried, and cause fear in the children as they're being raised in a world where they're told the world's coming to an end and by the way, you can't afford anything. This is immoral. It's unscientific. It's unreasonable. Let's keep going. <laughs> this approach, which has gained traction in recent years, yes, it certainly has, end quote. This approach, so this whole approach of scaling down destructive and unnecessary forms of production, to some extent, yes, it has gained traction. It's gained so much traction that in fact, Governments have begun to enact policies around this, which has caused 
and economic decline. We could have far more growth than what we have, far more wealth production at a greater rate than what we have. But the, the small amount we do have is happening in spite of the terrible policies, in spite of them, not because of them. Okay, so this approach, which has gained traction in recent years, can enable rapid decarbonisation and stop ecological breakdown while improving social outcomes. It frees up energy and materials for low and middle income countries in which growth might still be needed for development. Ah, okay. So it frees up energy and materials for low and middle income countries in which growth might still be needed for development. So we're admitting there in the article that growth is good sometimes for low and middle income countries. Look, even the USA is a low income country compared to the USA of the year 3000. If things go well, if things go well, if we manage to escape from this degrowth nonsense, then all countries presently existing that are high income are actually low income compared to their future possible selves. And so this is why growth is needed. We are at the beginning of infinity. Things can get a heck of a lot better and things can get worse. One way to ensure they get worse is to engage in degrowth. Okay, let's keep going. The article says, quote, Degrowth is a purposeful strategy to stabilise economies and achieve social and ecological goals unlike recession, which is chaotic and socially destabilizing and occurs when growth-dependent economies fail to grow. Ah, end quote. So what they're saying here is that recession is what you normally call a sequence of periods where you've got degrowth. I think the technical term is, what is it, two, maybe three quarters of successive negative economic growth, you know, two or three, uh, two or three quarters of successive negative economic growth. But they're saying here, well, no, this would be purposeful. <laughs> So because it's a purposeful recession, it's not really a recession because we planned this all the way along. What do you think happens when degrowth happens? When you have degrowth, when you reduce the amount of wealth that a society has access to, that means everyone has less money. That means everyone is less wealthy within that society. That means literally, over time, people can't afford to buy the stuff they want to, which could very well include, for the lowest income people, the food that they have. But of course, these people will argue there will be no low-income people in this new world. In this new world, everyone earns the same. Hmm, why haven't we tried that before? Why haven't we tried that before? Perhaps because we have, many times. It is a tribal idea. The chief of the tribe would have all of the stuff and would determine that everyone else gets a certain amount of the resources, a certain amount of food. The modern version of the tribe is nothing but communism. Nothing but communism. Let's keep going. The article says, quote, Reports this year by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, and the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystems, IPBES, suggest that degrowth policies should be considered in the fight against climate breakdown and biodiversity loss, respectively. Policies to support such a strategy include the following. Well, let's get into it. What do they suggest can be done or should be done? Well, we've mentioned some already. Firstly, Reduce less necessary production. This means scaling down destructive sectors such as fossil fuels, mass-produced meat and dairy, fast fashion, advertising, cars and aviation, including private jets. At the same time, there is a need to end the planned obsolescence of products, lengthen their lifespans, and reduce the purchasing power of the rich. End quote. Reduce the purchasing power of the rich. How do you do that? How do you do that except through force and coercion? Okay, so there, there's implied violence here to reduce the purchasing power of the rich. Now, if, if you want to forcibly also uh, eliminate stuff like fast fashion, let's say, so that your clothes last longer, okay, there's this idea that 
certain manufacturers of clothes make them deliberately of poor quality so that they fall apart into rags <laughs> over time. I don't know if this is true, by the way, but let's assume that it is so that you'll go back and buy year after year new stuff. Now, if you put government in charge of, let's say, making clothes, okay, passing regulations to make clothes, what do you think will happen? Do you think you'll get better clothes? It's like Euron Brook often says, holding up his iPhone. Would you put the government in charge of making smartphones? What kind of smartphone do you think you'd end up with if the government was in charge of innovating technology like that? The same is true of everything. The same is true of clothes. Do you think you'd really get the best sort of clothes if the government was in charge of regulating how the clothes were made? I know for a fact that people who want to purchase good quality clothes can. Uh, I was listening to Jocko Willink's podcast recently. One of his businesses is engaged in making boots and clothes and stuff. And he says that he makes the stuff deliberately of such high quality that it could, in theory, last an entire lifetime. So you buy a pair of boots from Jocko and they will just last forever. They will last your entire life. They will outlive you. And why? So that there is an option there in the market if you want to buy that thing rather than the boot that's made somewhere else of lower quality, then you have the choice. You have the choice to do that. But these people want to take away your choice and to give you the government-regulated boot, the government-regulated singlet, the government-regulated pair of trousers, etc. Uh, they say there in the very first sentence there too, this means scaling down destructive sectors such as fossil fuels. Destructive sectors, so it's all downside with the fossil fuels. How is it all downside? How are they just destructive? They're just destructive. They don't actually do anything good. They don't actually provide the fuel in order to smelt, fire up the iron smelter in order to produce the steel. Fossil fuels don't actually provide the materials in order to create the environment around you. Anything made out of plastic, that's going to be a fossil fuel. And of course, they don't provide the literal energy to power the electrical systems and the transportation systems around the world. So that's not destructive. None of those things are destructive. What they do do is provide some additional carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, by the way, once upon a time used to be in the atmosphere. Was that at a time when people couldn't have possibly lived on the Earth? Absolutely, because the amount of oxygen then was less. However, there is also such a thing, there is also such a thing as carbon dioxide saturation of the atmosphere, where at the moment the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is something like 412 parts per million, according to NASA. Just looking it up now. But the effects, the capacity of carbon dioxide to trap heat in the atmosphere, which is a real thing, yes, it absolutely does, it forms a blanket on the atmosphere, it can become saturated. If you double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere right now, we'd still be able to breathe fine, and we're not going to suffocate or anything like that. If you doubled it to about 800, you wouldn't double the amount of heat that is trapped by the atmosphere because of this idea of saturation. The effect of carbon dioxide in trapping heat in the atmosphere is almost saturated as it is. Does this mean that adding additional carbon dioxide won't trap more heat? Yes, but it's marginal. Will it cause the melting of the polar ice caps? It could. Could we do anything about that? Yes, we can. We can build seawalls. Have a look at the Netherlands. The Netherlands knows how to deal with existing in a place where the sea levels, if they didn't have seawalls, if they didn't have mitigation technologies, would actually flood almost the entire country. Certainly flood places like Amsterdam or The Hague. Okay, so that's all, all very scary. So they want to reduce... Um, cars and aviation, including private jets. They don't want you to move anywhere. <laughs> so at least they don't want you to move anywhere fast. 
<laughs> reduced cars. They, they're not even they're not even saying that. Well, maybe electric cars would be okay. No, it's just we we we, we want to reduce the amount of cars and less necessary. How is any of this stuff less not necessary? Uh, okay, so the fast fashion might be if we take that seriously. Maybe that's less necessary. But why are cars less necessary? Why is aviation less necessary? Including private jets. But private jets, by the way, it seems to me, you know, you don't have to watch the news for very long to realise that it's the people advocating for these kind of policies, the politicians in the main, who are catching the private jets everywhere. And I just love how the writers of the article seem to think that we just know how to do this stuff. So there is a need to end the planned obsolescence of products. So I've heard that this is a phenomenon, but I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure that it's a function of making these products much more quickly and much more cheaply. And this is a good thing. More people have access to things like washing machines and refrigerators, which people say, oh, you know, you go back 50, 60 years ago and the refrigerator you bought at the time is still running today. It just lasts forever and ever and ever. The compressor inside of it, it was just really well constructed. Yeah, but not everyone had a refrigerator back then either. And the refrigerator probably cost you, you know, what, 10 weeks wages or something. These days it costs one week's wages and they're pumped out a lot faster and everyone's got a refrigerator. So this is the cost benefit analysis that you do. If you decide to engage in a policy like this, to lengthen their lifespans, lifespans of products, what do you think happens to the cost? What do you think happens to the cost? Puts it out of the reach of everyone. Oh, no, the government will come in and help you. Yeah, but where does the government get its money from? From taxing the people. Okay, and, well, this is just terrifying. Reducing the purchasing power of the rich. The only way to do that is to reduce their wealth, to turn the rich into the poor, which is what they want. As if the rich didn't create their wealth. Some didn't, sure. Some inherited their wealth, but they are a tiny minority. It appears to be the case when people look into the sociological effects of this stuff that it only takes one or two generations for the sons and daughters and grandchildren of the millionaires to just go back to having very to having no more money than the average person because, well, they didn't create it in the first place. They don't know how to handle money, and so they end up not having much of it. On the other hand, the people, the Elon Musks of the world, are creating. The wealth, the Jeff Bezos of the world are creating the wealth, taking it off them so that they can't reinvest it back into the profitable business is a recipe for disaster. Let's keep going. Improve public services. It is necessary to ensure universal access to high quality health care, education, housing, transportation, internet, renewable energy and nutritious food. Universal public services can deliver strong social outcomes without high levels of resource use. End quote. I don't know how, this is like magic. So universal public services can do this without high levels of resource use. How do you power all the stuff that's in the hospital reliably? Do you really want to rely upon only, only solar and wind and some batteries in order to power your hospital, the life-saving technology in your hospital? I want something that we has been shown to be reliable over many, many years, and we can explain how it's going to be reliable rather than an experimental, an entirely experimental electricity grid. Batteries will become better, sure, but they're not there yet. And you need to manufacture the batteries. And you need to do mining in order to extract the materials you need in order for the battery to run. In order to manufacture all of this stuff, you need to do some mining. And then you need to do refining, which takes lots and lots of heat, among other things. And I have no problem with ensuring universal access to high quality healthcare, education, housing, transportation, the internet, etc. But I just don't think the government is the one to do it. I think the best way to give everyone high quality, cheap healthcare not to force it onto people, but rather to enable them to be able to afford it, 
is via a free market system where doctors can compete with each other for providing services. That would be one thing. In terms of housing and transportation, aren't we already there in the West? We have universal access to housing and transportation. It is fractions of a percent of people who can't afford housing in Western countries. The people who don't have housing are typically engaged in some sort of addictive behaviour. They've got some severe problems that they're dealing with. But all one needs to do, all one needs to do, is to put a small amount of effort into putting one foot in front of the other, perspiring just a little bit, putting a little bit of effort in, and one can afford housing. One can afford transportation. One can afford internet. How cheap is internet now? Almost everyone has a mobile phone. Even in developing countries, people have smartphones now. Internet is cheap. And the way that this has been delivered to people is not via a North Korean-style system. It is via a free market system. Even China has realised this. The only reason, the only reason that the people in China have been able to raise their standard of living is by allowing some small amount of the free market into that country. Not enough. They would be a heck of a lot more wealthy. More people would be more wealthy in China because there are still many denizens of that poor country that are stricken with poverty because of the communist system they have in the rural areas of China, absolutely. But the people in the cities, at least, are now beginning to flourish to some extent, if not in terms of free speech and liberty and self-expression, at least in terms of a degree of wealth that wouldn't be possible if you had more government control over that system, which is what's being prescribed here. Their next prescription, quote, introduce a green jobs guarantee. This would train and mobilise labour around urgent social and ecological objectives such as installing renewables, insulating buildings, regenerating ecosystems and improving social care. A program of this type would end unemployment <laughs> and ensure a just transition out of jobs for workers in declining industries or sunset sectors such as those contingent on fossil fuels. It could be paired with a universal income policy. Yeah, so this is just pure rank communism, nothing but. Everyone gets a job and everyone is given a universal income. Everyone's given, well, even the people who, well, if you've got the mobilised labour market where everyone gets a job, there's no need for providing a universal income to people who don't have a job because everyone will have a job. They've got a jobs guarantee. There's a jobs guarantee. So whatever you're working in, no matter how hard you study, no matter how much effort you put in, you will get the same wage as everyone else. The universal income, the universal income. So sit back, enjoy your life. No need to try hard. No need to be creative because we're just going to send you a check. So you'll be motivated to work hard, won't you? Does anyone really think that everyone is going to be able to be employed in just those few industries? Just those industries such that, that are involved in installing renewables, insulating buildings, regenerating ecosystems and improving social care. So we're going to have millions of people engaged in those areas. I thought earlier we were talking about not producing unnecessary stuff, and yet we're going to have so many people insulating buildings that... <laughs> We're going to be unnecessary. We're going to be, what, double and triple insulating buildings. Once we've insulated every building, what then? What then? <laughs> or installing renewables. Once we've got enough solar panels and enough wind turbines, what then? What then? An army of maintenance crews that are just performing unnecessary maintenance on things <laughs> that keep themselves occupied. I suppose they all sit down, you know, they lay on their backs and they stare up at the sky at this point. You know, they just enjoy the utopia that's been built around them. They enjoy the life that is the unproblematic state. <laughs> they enjoy a world in which they are expert solar panel installers, they are expert installers of insulation in homes, but 
There better not be another problem that crops up, a problem which doesn't require expert solar panel installers, because where are we going to be then? People who think creatively and out of the box about all sorts of other things that might be needed in a world where we can't possibly predict the problems of the future, well, forget about that, okay? Because we're going to be able to solve everything with just these few industries, just these few areas of expertise that the government has deemed will be required under any circumstance ever that is foreseeable to them. This is a recipe for disaster. Never mind the asteroid that's coming towards us. <laughs> Never mind the other catastrophe that's just around the corner. We've got lots of solar panels. Oh no, hold on. The next, <laughs> the next point actually fixes this. So <laughs> we don't have to worry about having too many buildings being insulated. We don't have to worry about installing excess um, solar panels. Why? Because, well, the next point says, quote, reducing working time. <laughs> this could be achieved by lowering retirement age, encouraging part-time working or adopting a four-day working week. These measures would lower carbon dioxide emissions and free people to engage in care and other welfare-improving activities. They would also stabilise employment as less necessary production declines. Perfect. <laughs> they, they thought quicker than I did. I didn't realise. So once you've insulated all the buildings and once you've put all the solar panels down that you could possibly ever need, well then, we just reduce the working time, you see. We don't need people to be doing stuff. So it's free energy from the sun, okay? And we just have a small number of maintenance people that will fix that stuff, okay? So what's wrong with it? What's wrong with all this is people aren't free to explore their own areas of interest and be paid for it. So they're being guaranteed a job. Another way of saying that is they're being forced into working in a particular industry. There's very little entrepreneurship here. It's not permitted anymore. It's not permitted to do stuff like Elon Musk does, like building rockets. That's absolutely ruled out. How environmentally unfriendly is that? We don't need other unnecessary things like people building ever faster computers. What do you need a faster computer for? What are you mining crypto? We don't need that anymore. So we're not trying to push the frontiers of technology forward anymore. We're not searching for the problems of tomorrow so that we can find the solutions that are needed to overcome those problems. We're not looking anymore because we've created the utopia here on Earth. The government knows what's best. It'll put people into the jobs where it thinks they are required. This is precisely what North Korea does, by the way. You know, after you've graduated school, you are, you are funneled straight into a particular area, into a particular job. The government knows what's best. This idea of a universal income, this idea of reducing working time and so on, this is a perfect way to destroy a person's sense of self-worth, to tell them that no matter how hard they work, they're not going to earn more money. There's no hope of being able to improve their lot in life. It's fixed. And to tell them that, well, they're not really needed anyway, okay? Let's reduce the amount of hours that are expected to be needed. Now, this is fine if you have your own business, if you want to do something like that, because you can think creatively about how to improve the business in your times when you're off, let's say. But here, there is no scope for this type of creativity. I suppose if you wanted to be an artist, maybe you could do that, so long as it was in, in line with the government policy, okay? You wouldn't want to be creating art that's against any of this stuff, okay? Expressing, let's say, ideas of liberty and free expression. That's probably not going to be allowed, but, you know, maybe you can paint the propaganda posters or something like that in a world like this. Maybe you're allowed to do that. Let's keep going. Quote, enable sustainable development. This requires cancelling unfair and unpayable debts of low and middle income countries, curbing unequal exchange in international trade and creating conditions for productive capacity to be reoriented towards achieving social objectives. Okay, so debt forgiveness. Look, <laughs> given the kind of debts that governments have forgiven over the last few decades, 
forgiving the debts of certain countries, I would almost not mind. I mean, banks were bailed out to the tune of trillions of dollars not that long ago, well within living memory of a millennial. However, this is also, this is also a recipe for an economic lack of discipline. So, for example, I know that in the EU, for example, places like Germany, which are highly productive and produce a lot of money and a lot of wealth, tend to bail out the other countries in the EU that aren't, like Greece. Does this mean that Greece then has any cultural reason to change its behaviour or its habits? No. Does this create a little bit of resentment in, amongst the German people for other countries in the EU? Possibly. So it's not a great idea to go around just forgiving the debts that people owe you. That money is the money of citizens. It's the money of taxpayers. It's your money. It's your money being given away to other countries and then we're not asking for it back. If you want to give away your money to someone, that's called charity and you have every right to do that. But when the government comes and takes your money and gives it to someone else, that's not charity. That's not you doing a good thing. That's the government forcing you to do something. Let's get going. Quote, Some countries, regions and cities have already introduced elements of these policies. Many European nations guarantee free healthcare and education. Okay, end quote. Do they guarantee free healthcare and education? No, it's not free. It's government paid for. And where does the government get its money? Taxpayers. Is the free healthcare as good as the healthcare that you get in places like the United States? Possibly not. Why? Because in a place like the United States, we've actually got lots of entrepreneurship going on there, lots of advances going on in the healthcare sector, because it's one of the few places in the world where places like pharmaceutical companies, can still make a profit in order to invest in the next cycle of cures and treatments. In other places, it's regulated because it's government provided. And so the government is going to put a cap on costs, which means the healthcare providers cannot generate the kind of profits that would be needed in order to do the research, to fund the research that can improve stuff. Thankfully, we do have the United States where that is still going on and to some extent in Britain as well. Yes, there's medical research that goes on everywhere, but it could be going on a lot more if there wasn't government-provided healthcare that regulated this kind of stuff. Okay, and as they keep going, they keep saying free here, but it's not free, it just means taxpayer-funded. You're forced to pay for something even if you don't use it. So they go on to say, quote, Vienna and Singapore are renowned for high-quality public housing, okay, taxpayer-funded housing, and nearly 100 cities worldwide offer free public transport, taxpayer-funded funded public transport. So if you're driving a car all day, every day, and you never get on the bus and you never get on the train, then you're paying for people who do. Okay. Now I'm a public transport user. Okay. And I, I, I sometimes do resent the fact that I both pay tax and I then have to buy a ticket for the bus or the train. That doesn't make much sense to me. You're being hit twice. Nonetheless, I recognize the fact that anywhere that offers free public transport is actually just getting the additional money from the taxpayer. That's all. It's not free. If you're going to have free public transport, why not give everyone a free car? Like, seriously, why not? Why don't the people who drive cars get free cars? If the people who catch trains get a free train, why don't we have free Ubers for everyone? I'm sure there are some people sitting there now going, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Well, because, the reason why you shouldn't because is because someone has to pay, for, someone does pay for that. It's the taxpayer. I have a better idea of what to do with my money than the government does, than a central planner does. Let's get going. Job guarantee schemes have been used by many nations in the past in experiments with basic incomes and shorter working hours are underway in Finland, Sweden and New Zealand. But implementing a more comprehensive strategy of degrowth in a safe and just way faces five key research challenges as we outline here. Okay, so we're going to get into that. Look, this idea of shorter working hours, this is something that anyone can negotiate with their employer. Okay, so some places 
it's very difficult to negotiate that kind of thing. But I know that if you're working in an industry like fast food, let's say, the casual workers are called casual workers because they get to choose their own hours, as many hours as they want or as few hours as they want, broadly speaking. In places where it really is nine to five, then talk to your boss. If you don't like it, this is the whole point of having a free market system for labor is that you can move from one job to another where the conditions are better. In a government-run scheme, you wouldn't have choice. It would just be what the government tells you to do, you have to do. We know what this is like. Pick any government job. The police force is a government job. The army is a government job. Those people do not get to choose their own hours. They have very little choice about not only the hours they work, but where they work as well. They get posted anywhere. Any government job, any guaranteed job, is going to come with guaranteed conditions as well which might not be to your liking. On the other hand, if you're free to leave, as in the private sector, then you can find something better. And you can keep on resigning and applying, resigning and applying. Is it always that easy? No, it's not. That's why sometimes you just have to work hard. That's the reality of our circumstance. If you want to eat, you need money. If you want money, then you're gonna have to work. And sometimes you have to work hard, long hours. But if you do that, if you accept the reality of that situation and you do work hard for just a few years, you can get to a point where you no longer have to work as hard. And eventually, the ideal is you get to a point where you're not working at all, where your money is working for you, where you're able to invest in things and you can escape from this grind. But that's not possible in this world that they are painting for us. In this world they're painting, everyone has a guaranteed job. Everyone's going to work all the time. And you're going to do what you're told by the central planner. And you can't resign, but of course they want to have it both ways here. They want to both say, you've got a guaranteed job, but you've also got a guaranteed income. <laughs> so what if you resign your job? Well, you've still got the guaranteed income, right? What if everyone resigns their job? <sighs> Nothing gets done. Okay? This hasn't been thought through. It's not logical. It doesn't, it's not internally consistent, these prescriptions here. Okay, let's read the next bit. Remove dependencies on growth. Economies today depend upon growth in several ways. Welfare is often funded by tax revenues. Pausing there. Um, welfare is always funded by tax revenues. Always. That's, that's the way in which you get welfare. You, you extract the wealth from one place, from a certain set of tax base, and you give it to other people who are earning much, much less money, perhaps none, creating no wealth. Sometimes I can understand this is needed. It wouldn't always be needed, however. In a world in which people had more wealth for themselves, we would have charities. We would have charity able to fill in the gap, private industry, as they already do. People would give way more to charity if they weren't giving so much to the government. Okay, I'm going to skip a couple of paragraphs here. I want to get to the final paragraph under this remove dependencies on growth thing. And they say, quote, these models typically focus on a single country and fail to take into account cross-border dynamics, such as movements of capital and currency. For example, if markets are spooked by low growth in one country, some companies might move their capital overseas, which could adversely affect the original country's currency and increase borrowing costs. Conditions such as these posed severe financial problems for Argentina in 2001 and Greece in 2010. International cooperation for tighter border control of capital movements needs to be considered in the effects modelled, end quote. Aha, there we go. So we need a global government of some sort, the code for uh, international cooperation, 
code for <laughs> international cooperation for tighter border control global government which will stop people leaving one country which has terrible conditions and moving to another country but why why would you need tighter border controls why would anyone want to leave a particular country because of degrowth but isn't degrowth a good thing like if you're in a country with degrowth surely the utopia is beginning around you to flourish no they're already thinking ahead they're already thinking Degrowth might have some downsides. People might want to escape from a country that has degrowth. Therefore, we need a globally coordinated system. If everyone agrees on degrowth, and everyone also has to agree, you can't allow people to start leaving your nation. You certainly can't allow them to start taking capital out of the nation to a country that, let's say, has gone rogue and has decided to engage in growth where everyone is prospering and becoming more wealthy. No, we can't allow that. We need a globally coordinated system some sort of tight border control so that people are not permitted to leave and they're not allowed to take their wealth out of a nation which is undergoing degrowth, recession. Everyone's becoming more poverty-stricken and it becomes increasingly obvious and people begin to escape, as they do across borders, to places that are more wealthy. They're thinking ahead. They already realise this is belling the cat. <laughs> this is the writers of this paper understanding that degrowth is absolutely going to cause companies and individuals to flee those places where degrowth is going on because degrowth is not good. They recognize it themselves. And that's, that's ignoring the fact that you could have corrupt politicians that are enacting these policies but allowing certain companies to get around certain regulations and therefore lining their own pockets, whether directly with the tax money in the case of certain tyrants that happen to crop up now and again, or whether it's just the corrupt, democratically elected politician who manages to get around certain ways to businesses and to chummy up with the CEOs of various companies and to uh, be paid off, let's say, so that certain regulations don't have to be followed. This is all a recipe for corruption, tyranny and global control. This is dystopia. If the government of the country that you've got your business in starts to make terrible decisions, as they often do, such as in Argentina and Greece, where they're just turning socialist, then you shouldn't be allowed to leave. You shouldn't be allowed to leave. You should be restricted on taking your money elsewhere and your business elsewhere. This doesn't sound dystopian, does it? No, this is, this is ideal. This is, this is definitely a recipe for governments making good choices, governments enacting policies which will help the growth of businesses and help increase the wealth of individuals. It's not going to cause them to, for example, massively tax the businesses that are already in their countries and delivering that money into their own pockets, the pockets of corrupt politicians. That's not what would happen. If you knew that the profitable business that's in your country could be taxed and taxed and taxed until you are personally wealthy and could never leave, well, isn't that what you'd do if you're a corrupt politician? Many politicians are corrupt. Okay. Next, <laughs> next they say, fund public services. New forms of financing will be needed to fund public services without growth. <laughs> Governments must stop subsidies for fossil fuel extraction. End quote, pausing there. Just my reflection on that. Subsidies for fossil fuel extraction. It's not so much subsidies they provide. They just provide certain tax breaks. So they have, the, the fossil fuel companies pay less tax than certain other industries do. Good. I would like if everyone paid less tax. So I'm never going to bemoan the fact that particular sector or particular person pays less tax. Good. 
I say good insofar as it does actually happen in certain countries, which it may. You might get a tax break in order to build the technology in order to find the oil or find the coal or whatever it happens to be that you do to do exploration, let's say. You get a certain tax break for that. However, I know for a fact that in places like Australia, the coal and mining industries pay a lot more tax, well above the industry average. They have special taxes applied. One of the great concerns recently is in the federal government wanting to partially nationalise the coal industry. What they're doing is suggesting a price cap on coal, forcing the gas and coal costs to not exceed a certain amount. So in other words, the fossil fuel companies can't set their own prices, the government's going to set it. Which means, of course, the fossil fuel companies don't make as much profit, which means in terms of the states, the states impose taxes, the states won't be getting as much taxes because they tax the profits. If the profits go down, the states don't get the same amount of money from taxation as they did before the federal government put a cap on prices. And so now there's this big debate in Australia between the states and the federal government because the states are losing out while the federal government is able to say, look, we've put a cap on the prices of coal and gas. It's all ridiculous. If the coal companies were just allowed to increase production, if the gas companies were allowed to increase production, then of course costs will go down. Increased supply, you're going to have reduced costs. But at the moment, the Australian government, like so many governments around the world, is restricting the amount of production of fossil fuels because of green theories about how the environment is being affected by these fossil fuels. And so therefore they're saying, well, in order to fix climate change, we're going to restrict the amount of these fossil fuels. So you restrict supply, prices go up, prices go up so much that then you say, well, we've got to turn around and put a cap on the prices. It's absolutely absurd. The simple answer is stop getting involved, government. You have nothing to do with providing electricity. It's not up to you. Allow the private industries to do it and they will increase supply so much and they will compete with each other that the prices will naturally go down. If you put a cap on prices, then their profits go down. If their profits go down, they've got no motivation to actually increase anything, to try hard anymore, because you are restricting their profits. You're preventing them from being able to increase efficiency, from researching ways in order to deliver their services better. Things are going to increase in price and you're going to have to continue to subsidise to provide more money to the fossil fuel companies just to keep them afloat eventually. That's eventually what will happen is their profits will asymptotically disappear to zero and the federal government will have to come along and effectively nationalise these companies completely, which has happened before. That's the road we appear to be heading down in Australia. No one's thinking ahead. People want to close down the existing mines and coal-fired power stations that exist and electricity prices just keep on going up. The citizens are complaining about electricity prices and the government is blaming wars in distant countries. This is all absurd. But those policies of the Australian federal government that I'm whining about now are on a continuum with precisely the kind of policies prescribed in this article in Nature. And our federal government, among others around the world, will love to see an article like this in a prestigious journal like Nature by eight well-renowned, globally respected academics experts in the field and they'll be able to refer to this and say look there's a prescription from an expert do you want us to defy expert opinion of course you don't you're not scientifically illiterate like all those other people those other people on that side of politics who don't understand the science they don't even read journal articles like the ones in nature <sighs> so what do they go on to prescribe as well 
Governments, okay, they should tax ecologically damaging industries such as air travel and meat production. Wealth taxes can also be used to increase public resources and reduce inequality. End quote. Yeah, well, they won't be wealthy very long. The wealth, the wealthy won't be wealthy long if you keep taxing them with wealth taxes. But of course, that's what these people want. They regard wealth as an inherent evil, when in fact it's a good. Okay, profit is good, wealth is good because it is the thing that allows you to transform reality in order to solve the problems that need to be solved. That's what wealth is. Wealth is, it is the repertoire of possible transformations that you can make. And some of those transformations are required if you want to fix the problem in front of you. If the asteroid is detected tomorrow by a telescope and it's heading towards the Earth, we need wealth. We need wealth and rapid wealth creation in order to fund the rockets and whatever other technology we need in order to deflect that thing. It's been a proof of concept so far, but if it's a bigger asteroid and we don't discover it until it's a little bit too late, we better want to have the Elon Musks and Jeff Bezos's of the world with the capacity to build big rockets to actually try out this stuff. If they don't have the wealth because it's been extracted from them by government and they haven't been doing the research they otherwise would have been doing, investing in those companies, those rocket companies, then that will be on the governments. That will be on this sort of policy. And replace the asteroid. The asteroid, as I like to say, is just a metaphor for any other problem, any problem. If the pandemic that we recently had is followed up by a much worse pandemic, soon that will be a catastrophe. That will be a genuine cat catastrophe because we have squandered so much wealth already. What are we going to do? We've, we've depleted the stores of wealth. We should be funding science from all angles. Fundamental physics, fundamental epidemiology, fundamental virology, all of this stuff. Can we? Are we? Could we be doing more? Can we not afford it as we once could? Could we afford to be doing more? Okay, let's keep going. I'm skipping a little here. And they talk about um, governments using their own currencies and uh, monetary policy. No doubt they're supporters of modern monetary policy. You know, print more money, just spend it, no problem. Okay, so they're going into monetary policy and things. Boring. Let's keep going. <laughs> Manage working time reductions is the next one. Trials of shorter working hours have generally reported positive outcomes. Okay, yeah, so let's see what the positive outcomes are. They say, these include less stress and burnout and better sleep among employees while maintaining productivity. Most trials have focused on the public sector, mainly in Northern Europe, but private companies in North America, Europe, and Australasia have run trials of four-day weeks with similar results. However, the companies were self-selecting and researchers needed to test whether this approach can succeed more widely for example, outside white-collar industries that dominate the trials, end quote. Yeah, no doubt I'm in support of this. I don't have any problem with people working less if they want to. Okay, so long as the, the same amount is being done, whatever the business needs to be done or whatever the government services need to be done. But if you just artificially reduce what was five days down to four days, well, that's a 20% reduction. That work, that slack surely needs to be picked up somewhere or other. You need to employ more people. But again, I think this should be a negotiation. Some people really do want to work six or seven days a week. They just do, okay? I've met people like this, okay? It's a period in my life where I was quite happy to do six or seven days a week. But once you've done that for a while, maybe you don't want to do that anymore. So you should be able to select industries and jobs and work that you want, that you want. Not being forced into, you have to do a four-day week or you have to do a five-day week. Yeah, it's a bizarre kind of culture we've gotten ourselves into. But again, that's part of this coercion model. 
everyone does the same thing. Whether it's five days, four days, three days, or two, it doesn't matter. If you're being forced into doing it because the state is telling you this is what, this is what needs to be done, it's the wrong approach. Or if just the boss is telling you what to do, if you don't want to be told what to do by the boss, then find another job. Most people also accept this is sometimes a reality for part of their life. Okay, skipping past just uh, reducing the work week, okay, that's fine, but it's not that simple. It's not just, it's not so simple just to say, we're reducing the work week down to four days. Stuff still needs to get done. Okay, if there's a certain number of police that need to patrol the streets in order to keep the place safe or to respond to calls, or let's use paramedics, okay, then there's a certain number of paramedics that need to be out there on any given shift. So if you're telling them they only need to work three days instead of four or two days instead of three or whatever it happens to be, you need to employ more paramedics. And perhaps that's going to increase your costs if you run the paramedics. If you're, if you're, the, government who's, if you're the government minister in charge of that particular ministry, you know, the health ministry that's got to pay these paramedics, where do you get the money from? Well, again, from taxation. So you're going to have to raise the taxes perhaps. It's not that simple. And just reduce the work week. Stuff still needs to get done. There's a certain amount of work that needs to be done. Next, reshape provisioning systems. Okay, so they say, quote, no country currently meets the basic needs of its residents sustainably. There's that word. So almost all countries in the West meet the basic needs of their residents. But when they say sustainably, they of course mean in a way that doesn't impact the environment, which is impossible which is absolutely impossible. You're always going to have an impact on the environment. The environment doesn't mind. The environment is unthinking, unfeeling, uncaring. The environment is the thing that causes the thunderstorms, the earthquakes, the volcanoes. It is the thing we need to protect ourselves against. We shouldn't worry about affecting the environment. We should worry about the environment destroying us, killing us, affecting people. People are the most important things in the universe. The environment stretches all the way out to the very edges of the universe. They go on to say, quote, affluent economies use more than their fair share of resources. <sighs> End quote. Fair share? What does this fair share mean? Fair share means that everyone should be allocated precisely the same amount, and no one should use more than anyone else. But people have different preferences, don't they? I can imagine the Olympic snow skier is going to use more resources than I do because they're traveling to places where it's very, very cold. So they need to have more heating. They also need to buy all the expensive gear that's required for snow skiing. Good on them. That's on them. That's their preference. They want to do something like that. Should they not be allowed to be affluent and to engage in things like snow skiing? Well, according to this, perhaps not. Perhaps they're not using their fair share. Well, people who like to go fishing need to have a boat. I don't have a boat. I don't have a yacht. I'd like to have a yacht. Is that my fair share? The thing is that human beings are creative individuals. We all have very diverse interests. So we are going to use different amounts of resources by virtue of the fact that we live in different places as well. Some people live in a nice warm place. Some people live in freezing cold locations. Others live in stinking hot locations. Where you live, under what conditions you live, is also going to be a factor in how much resources you use. Okay, let's keep going. So, uh, skipping a little, and then they go on to say, quote, researchers need to reconcile these approaches and consider resources besides energy, including materials, land and water. They need to examine the provisioning systems for housing, transportation, communication, healthcare, education, and food. What social and institutional changes would improve provisioning? Okay, so they're going on about provisioning here. In other words, how does the government get this stuff to you? How does the government 
get materials, land and water to you? How does it get transportation and communication and healthcare to you? Well, it's going to, well, it's going to be a coercive mechanism, isn't it? People are going to be allotted a certain amount of housing, a certain amount of transportation they can have, a certain amount of data that they're allowed to use, a certain amount of healthcare that they can have each year. Okay, you might have a certain number of units of these things. And once you've consumed your units, well, then you're in trouble, aren't you? You've already used your monthly downloads. You've already traveled X number of kilometers this month. You, you can't travel any further. You've been to the doctor three times this week. That's it. We can't afford you to go anymore. And food, well, provisioning of food. When has this ever been a problem, by the way, in the West over the last few decades? The private, this is one area where often the communists of this sort, don't really suggest that the government needs to be involved. But here they kind of are insinuating that the government might need to provision food. But why? What's wrong at the moment? Is there malnutrition going on in the West, in Australia, in the United States, Canada, Britain, Europe, Asia, anywhere? Are people genuinely malnourished? I don't think so. And I think that the reason they're not is because there is a wonderful free market of people competing restaurants and supermarkets and well every convenient shop that you walk into is just stocked packed full of food and drinks there isn't want of food and there isn't want of food because of this competition this abundance this capacity for us to create more than what we need not so much that it's unprofitable but enough so that everyone gets what they want in fact more than what they want and the companies continue to grow and continue to innovate and continue to make more at a cheaper price and more nutritious as well and better flavor and all that sort of stuff. The cost per calorie keeps on going down and that's a good thing. Keep on going. Just take the last paragraph of this section and they said, take housing for example. In many parts of the world, property markets cater to developers, landlords and financiers. This contributes to segregation and inequality and can push working people out of city centers so they are dependent on cars, which increases fossil fuel emissions. Alternative approaches include public or cooperative housing and a financial system that prioritises housing as a basic need rather than as an opportunity for profit, end quote. Look, you don't have a right to live in a particular place, okay? You, you don't have a right to live in the city. You have a right to live where you can afford to live. And no one has a right to these things. If you had a right to it, then the government must provide you with a house, for example. And in many, many places they do. I accept that. What you have a right to do is a right to buy a house, but you don't have a right to be given a house, okay? To be given a house in anywhere at all. And in cities, in many cities, yes, the property is more expensive. That's the reality. Accept reality. I accept reality. I'm not living in a waterfront mansion. I accept reality. I don't have a right to live there. But if I had enough money and a house was for sale there, then I would have a right to put a bid on the house. This isn't hard. This is all just more of the politics and economics of envy. These are people looking at wealthy people who have waterside mansions, people who don't have to work long hours and saying, I want that too. But they don't have the money to do that. They don't have the money to have long stretches of time where they're not engaged in difficult physical labor or difficult work at the office. They have a small studio apartment somewhere. They are envious of these people who are earning lots and lots of money, or in these cases, academics who are working really hard in a university job, not earning as much as the entrepreneur. We'd all like to earn more money and grind less. But at the moment, 
Many of us are not able to do that. We have to work hard. Not all of us are in the privileged position where we don't have to work hard. Ideally, one day we will be. With increased technology, with artificial intelligence, with the economy as it is making advances in science and technology and knowledge creation broadly, then everything eventually gets automated and everyone's life gets better. There's only so much coastline, so not everyone can live on the coastal waterfront mansion, but everyone can have a better standard of living. But do you know how to frustrate that project? Do you know how to ensure that people will never be able to escape from the grind? Is to implement a coercive communist socialist style system where everyone is engaged in some sort of physical labor just to keep the machine running, just to keep people fed. The only way to have innovation, to have automation of things, is to have creativity, is to have people figuring out ways of doing this stuff. And you know where that gets done? It's not in the government. It is in private industry. It is the Apples and Teslas of the world. It is these large corporations where you have the brightest, wealthiest people working on difficult problems of how to automate stuff and make life easier for everyone. Eventually, yes, into the asymptotic future, everyone will be able to leave behind drudgery. Everyone will be able to leave behind the perspiration phase. Everyone will be able to leave behind hard physical labor or boring work at the office. Yes, that is absolutely possible. That is a soluble problem. But we are not there yet. We simultaneously can embrace that possibility in the future as a real future while also admitting what our reality is now. And personally, on a personal level, you need to accept the reality now that if it seems like you have to work hard in order to earn the money to get to a position where you can have an easier life, then accept that reality. That's all there is for it. You can read the beginning of infinity and you can accept that there is optimism and hope there that one day, one day you will escape from all perspiration and you can lay back and you can be creative and solve genuinely interesting problems. But that might not be your circumstance right now. Right now you could pursue ways in which you can foster an environment in your own life to work on nothing but creative stuff. But in the meantime, you also might need to feed yourself. In the meantime, you might have to pay the rent. In the meantime, you might have to accept the fact that bills need to be paid. It's, there's, nothing, there's no way of getting around that. And if you think that the government is going to provide a utopia where they pay all of your bills, you're, you're in dreamland, you're in fantasy land. Because if this is the reality that you want to implement, then what's going to happen is the government is going to completely squash innovation and creativity by taking away from everyone the motivation to make their life better by striving for something better and at the moment for many people that requires a bit of perspiration perspiration in the form quite often of creatively thinking through problems but if you're not thinking through your problems yourself at an individual level and instead someone's giving you an answer like the government here's the job that is going to set you up for life here's the thing that you're going to do here's the way in which you are the cog in this machine to keep everything running and you are told by the way oh you'll only have to work four days a week of course, then the crops begin to fail. Then the natural disaster happens. Then the sun doesn't shine. Then the wind doesn't blow. The solar energy isn't being produced. The wind energy isn't being produced. The batteries are all depleted. And what happens then? What happens then is the actual civilizational collapse because you don't have electricity. Why don't you have electricity? Because you have refused to build coal-fired power stations. You've shut them all down. You've also said that nuclear's off the table as well. Now, 
We're all hoping that fusion power comes to save the day. But again, it's not there yet either. And in the meantime, in the meantime, until we transition to fusion power, which will be a solution at some point in the future. We don't know how far. It could be weeks. It could be months. It could be years. It could be decades. It could be centuries. We just don't know. Until then, let's use the cheapest electricity we have. That's a reality. The reality is that sometime in the distant future, be it months, years or decades, you will be able to sit back and engage in nothing but creative work. You won't have to work hard, but we're not there yet for almost all of us. For almost all of us, there is going to be a transition phase in our life where we have to work hard, we have to grind. Why? In the hope, in the optimistic hope that this will bear fruit. And the fruit will be that eventually you can work slightly less hard and slightly less hard still and slightly less hard still until you're engaged in a project where it never feels like work at all. That's the ideal for everyone. Ideals are worth pursuing, but you can't implement an ideal by clicking your fingers and magicking it into reality. That's not the way any of this works. But this policy prescription we're being presented here by the authors of this Nature Commentary article is magic. It's a magic way of moving from the reality of where we are to where ideally people would like to be. But there's no plan for how to get there. And without a plan of how to get from X to Y, there may as well be 50 billion light years between X and Y. There's simply no way to traverse the space. Okay, so accept reality while simultaneously accepting that things can and will get better. But often the transition from the reality, which not, might not be ideal, to something that is a lot better must happen incrementally. Because if you take a step on the road to somewhere better, you might make a misstep. And if you make a misstep, you want to be able to backtrack. And the smaller the step you've taken, no matter how fast you take it, you can quite easily go backwards. But if you take these huge leaps and you implement a revolutionary scheme, it can be difficult to undo the damage that you've caused. Okay, skipping to the next section, which says political feasibility and opposition. Quote, growth is often treated as an arbiter of political success. Few leaders dare to challenge GDP growth, but public attitudes are changing. Polls in Europe show that the majority of people prioritise well-being and ecological objectives over growth, end quote. Well, yes, but that's because they may not understand the necessary link between GDP growth, wealth creation, and so-called well-being. Well-being, happiness, generally feeling satisfied and like you're accomplishing something in life, human flourishing, these things occur in societies where the overall wealth is increasing. You have something to strive for. You can make life better for yourself, your family, and everyone in society. You can look forward to a tomorrow where you're earning more money than today. And if everyone has that, they have something to aspire to. They think, yes, things are getting better. My computer's getting better. My car is getting better. My house is getting better. I've got more money so that I don't have to work so hard tomorrow. I can relax a little bit more today. This is what growth is. Growth is our ability to become more wealthy, to have more time to do stuff that we'd like to do. Degrowth is the absolute opposite to that. They want to square a circle. They are running a contradiction inherent at the heart of this, which is that we'll all do less, we'll all work less, less hours, there will be degrowth, but somehow we'll all be better off. How is this possible? If there's degrowth across the entire community, across society, then that means all of society has less money. If the GDP is going down, then the net amount of money in that society has decreased. 
per person, the amount of wealth has decreased. The amount of options you have for purchasing stuff, computers, cars, boats, houses, whatever, has also decreased. The number of different kinds of clothes has decreased. Is your life getting better with this reduction in choice and this reduction in wealth? After all, everything's undergoing degrowth in this model. You're being asked to work less, you're being guaranteed a job, but you can't do as much with the money you do have. You've got less money. You've got less purchasing power. Everyone. You have less money. Your family has less money. Your children can look forward to less money. Whatever the standard of living is that you have now, your children can look forward to a worse standard of living. That's degrowth. That's a reduction in growth. That's a reduction in wealth. This is not hard to understand. Now, you might be able to sit back in your backyard, look up at the sky and enjoy some free time, but forget about going on an actual vacation, an actual holiday somewhere. You're not allowed to travel overseas anymore. There aren't as many planes flying, such as in COVID. In fact, there might be restrictions on people being able to travel. Frivolous things like overseas holidays won't be permitted under this model. In fact, you might not be able to travel interstate because after all that requires fossil fuels and you might have used up your allotted amount of energy for that particular month. This entire dystopian view of degrowth is a recipe for disaster, depression and decline. It is the way in which the problem will arise that we won't have the wealth to combat. We won't be able to react in the agile fashion that we are in a dynamic society. This is a recipe for a static society, a society in which there isn't improvements being made. It's the exact opposite to improvement. When you make improvements, then you have growth. But this is not about progress and improvement. It's the opposite. It's about engaging in degrowth. They can say all they want about how things would be better, but the simple fact is, if you reduce the amount of wealth in a society, you have degrowth, negative growth, a recession, which they say is not a recession. This is a deliberate, a deliberate reduction in growth, negative growth over a number of years until until when we're not told not told exactly how small the economy has to become we're just told it must become smaller engaging in degrowth so that everyone has less money less wealth less options on which to spend their money the small amount the lesser amount that they do have it's an absolute fantasy it's a description of the worst kind of dystopia you can imagine if these people were allowed to get their way unfortunately in some senses they are to some extent, they are actually having an impact. Now, this is at one extreme, published though it is in the journal Nature, which is ludicrous. But these ideas do, in some form, inform many Western countries around the world. This idea of degrowth is already happening when it comes to energy policy. They just want to apply it to everything else now. Human flourishing and well-being is coupled to the hope that your life will get better. And one way of measuring how people's lives are getting better is an increase in wealth, their capacity to buy more stuff, to fix their problems, to pay for what they need to pay for in order that their life becomes better. If you engage in degrowth, you reduce the amount of wealth. That means the number of solutions that they can afford to actually purchase to fix the problems in their lives is diminished. This is not a good thing. They go on, quote, polls in the United States and the United Kingdom show support for job guarantees and working time reductions, end quote. Well, of course, polls show support for those things. Polls show support for free holidays. Polls show support for more Disneylands. Polls show support for free alcohol deliveries every weekend. What, this is not a consensus issue, okay? It's not about how many people think that an idea is good that makes it good. 
Whether an idea is good or not is an objective fact about the world. A job guarantee and working time reductions may or may not be good, but it doesn't matter what the majority of people think. It's whether or not in the real world that actually has good outcomes for individual people, and it may not. The large numbers of workers who have left their jobs in movements such as the US Great Resignation or lying flat protest groups in China show there is demand for shorter working hours and more humane and meaningful work. End quote. Well, good. Yeah, this is this is what the option is, certainly in places like the US, where you have the option of resigning. Now, unfortunately, in places like the US and Australia and other places, the resignations were possible because the government guaranteed at least for some amount of time an income. So, of course, people could resign. Now, ideally, you want to be able to resign so that you can move into a better job. No problem with people resigning to go to a better job. Under this system of degrowth, where everyone is assigned a job guarantee, then you're guaranteed a particular job and you're guaranteed particular conditions, whatever the government says those conditions are. And they may be worse than what the private sector would have offered. Let's keep on going. And we have a, uh, at the end here, we have a section that's just titled, What Next? (laughs) Uh, The the very first sentence, government action is crucial. (laughs) (laughs) end quote. You bet it is. You bet it is. (laughs) This is all government. This is all government all the time, everywhere. (laughs) This is the multiverse government everywhere in your face at all times. Okay, so um, how much energy you can use, the government will tell you. What clothes you wear, the government will tell you. What job you have, the government will tell you. What your income is, the government will tell you. Where you're going to be educated and what you're going to be taught, the government will tell you. The government already does a lot of this, but it's just government on uber steroids, I suppose. Okay. (laughs) Let's keep going. Government action is crucial. This is a challenge because those in power have ideologies rooted in mainstream neoclassical economies and tend to have limited exposure to researchers who explore economics from other angles. (laughs) like Marxism. Yeah, so the government action thing is a bit of a challenge they're admitting because there are people who have ideologies that are opposed to government being involved in absolutely everything. There are these crazy lunatic libertarians out there who think things like the private sector should be able to engage in trialling different solutions to things. And sometimes those trials will fail and sometimes they'll succeed. The ones that succeed tend to make a profit and the ones that don't tend to make a loss. And in this way, we have this sort of Darwinian business model where the successful survive and the failures fall by the wayside. But we don't want this. We want it to be success all the time. We want to have the perpetual motion machine of the economy where we violate laws of energy conservation. We just have less growth, but somehow everyone's better off. Hmm, let's keep on going. (laughs) They say, political space will be needed to debate and understand alternatives and to develop policy responses. Well, that sounds nice. Yeah, political space needed to debate and understand alternatives. Yes, I wonder. I wonder if they really got to debate the alternatives like capitalism, who would come out on top? We see these debates. We see Euron Brook and, and Daniel Hannan and others have these debates and it's pretty obvious who wins in these cases. Let's keep going. Forums working on this include the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, the Growth in Transition Movement in Austria, the European Parliament's Post-Growth Conference Initiative, and the UK All-Party Parliamentary Group on Limits to Growth. Oh, this is wonderful. So the Europeans and the UK are engaged in (laughs) post-growth and limits to growth. (laughs) 
Growth is a good thing. Growth means that things are getting better. That's all it means. That's all it means. Okay, one metric is that the GDP goes up. And again, as I say, this gross domestic product tells you something about how much money the entire nation has. And, you know, you divide that by the number of people in the nation. And if that goes down, well, then the amount of wealth that each individual person has has also gone down. So individuals are being affected. This always comes back to a particular individual's life. If the entire country on average is going backwards, then so on average is each individual. Each individual has less wealth, less options, less capacity to solve their own problems because to solve a problem takes wealth, okay? The solution is gonna cost you money, whether that solution be a medical solution, an educational solution, a solution to put a roof over your head, a solution to uh, buy a computer or buy a new pair of underwear or whatever it happens to be, okay? If you have less wealth in the society, then you individually are likely to have less wealth as well. And now they go on with their contradictions. They go on to say, quote, Strong social movements are necessary. Forms of decision-making that are decentralised, small-scale and direct, such as citizens' assemblies, would help highlight public views about more equitable economies. Yeah, okay, so they say that, but what they really mean is that we just need these small groups of community-minded people uh, agitating in towns and villages and uh, town halls and wherever else, so that it's kind of decentralised in that sense until they have enough power to vote in the people where it will centralise everything. And then we don't need the decentralisation. Then we need the centralisation. Then we need the centrally controlled economy. That's the only purpose for decentralising here. It's a means to an end. Okay, the means is decentralised, but the ends are centralised. Going on, and they say, quote, addressing the question of how to prosper without growth will require a massive mobilisation of researchers in all disciplines. <laughs> it's like postmodernism, isn't it? I mean, we're going to need lots and lots of people out there spouting our nonsense in order to hoodwink everyone else. Okay, we just need to throw lots of experts at them, and then they'll be confused by our terminology. So researchers in all disciplines, including open-minded economists. Yeah, these economists are not open-minded. You know, they, they think things like you have to make a profit in order to be able to create the money and the wealth to pay for the stuff that you want. Uh, that's a ridiculous idea. You don't need to do that. You can go backwards. You can, you can run at a loss and still pay for stuff that's better than it was yesterday. <sighs> okay, so open-minded economists, they need social and political scientists, modelers and statisticians. Yes. So you need the mathematics and you need the graphs. So you just need the social scientists to have a friendly statistician to draw a graph of how it is that when degrowth is implemented, actually look at this graph, which is trending upwards of well-being. See, so the well-being will go up on one axis while the GDP goes down on the other axis. So we can do this. We just need the modelers and statisticians to draw a graph of this and then we'll, we'll publish it in nature by the way we'll, we'll put it in nature and then it'll be a peer-reviewed scientific article that you you can't you, you won't be able to debate because that's the experts and what are you a science denier okay keep going research on degrowth and ecological economics needs more funding to increase capacity to address necessary questions and the agenda needs attention and debate in major economic environmental and climate forums such as united nations conferences Yes, you know, nations so the de facto nascent global government. So we just need to give them more power and then they'll be able to take over the, the economy, the environment and the climate of, of planet Earth. Okay, so they'll be in charge of that. And we won't need these pesky nation states, which, you know, compete with one another about who has the best conditions. We don't need that. Everyone will live under a Chinese-style model. Final paragraph <laughs> says, quote, 
A March 2022 editorial in this journal argued that it is time to move beyond a limits to growth versus a green growth debate. We agree. In our view, the question is no longer whether growth will run into limits, but rather how we can enable societies to prosper without growth, to ensure a just and ecological future. Let's pave the way, end quote. Yeah, this is a nightmare. The whole thing's a nightmare. Um, there, are, there aren't limits to growth, okay? The, the, the resources are infinite. The only thing that's limited, as we like to say here, is knowledge. And the only way to create knowledge is to be able to try stuff out. We have to try stuff out by conjecturing. And this includes our technology, this includes our businesses, this includes methods of wealth production. And this is why the free market is necessary, because you don't know what's going to work ahead of time. You can't predict the growth of knowledge. And a specific type of the growth of knowledge are technologies and businesses. And, you know, how to make better clothes and how to make better cars and how to have better energy sources and all that sort of stuff. So you need to have a multiplicity, a multifaceted approach to this thing so that you can compete. You can have a, a competition of ideas, a competition of technologies, a competition of clothes, of underwear, of foods out there in the market so that some will fail and we can discard those, but some will survive. And all of this generates wealth and you need more wealth. The companies that succeed need to have wealth, need to have profit so they can reinvest into research to create more knowledge about how to make things yet better. This is why growth is needed. Growth is needed in order to improve our circumstance. Our circumstance is what it is and it can either get better, which means that we've grown, or it can get worse, which means that we've degrown. <laughs> they want to say that degrowing in some way, degrowth is a good thing because it's going to reduce our impact ultimately on the environment, which they see as good. And I see as the hellscape. The hellscape is that we do not push back against this hostile universe. The universe is not out to kill us, but it's also not friendly. It's just naturally hostile. There are natural disasters surrounding us all the time. And the only way for us to protect ourselves against the hostile universe, including a hostile planet, is to generate the wealth so we have the technology to push back. And that's going to cause us to affect the environment. We necessarily have to affect the environment. We necessarily have to have an impact upon this earth. Everything that you're being told is a bad thing about people, namely the environmental impact, is in fact a good thing. It's the thing that is protecting people, the most precious resource in the universe. We need more people, we need growth, reject ideas like this. So at this point, what can I say by means of summary or conclusion? Well, I have to say that none of this is science. It's ideology. This isn't the open exchange of ideas. It is a form of institutional capture. They say it's science. Well, okay, where's the experiment? Where's the testable theory? This is nothing but a political treatise. It's not even economics. This is pure politics, pure Marxist theory, as I say, and it serves a single purpose. It is published by people who lean far left in a journal which is undermining its reputation to push that same far left political agenda to provide a scientific veneer to a set of dogmas that politicians and bureaucrats in governments can point to and say, this study by eight respected experts in the relevant fields of economics and environmental science at prestigious universities is not just a blog post or a newspaper article, it appears in nature. Never mind it being labelled commentary, these are expert opinions we will be told, as we are presently told now when it comes to the more narrow area of climate policy. A policy is a moral prescription. It tells us what people say they want in the future to be done. It is the set of shoulds 
about our world. This is just what these people think should happen. But there is no way of them knowing any of it will achieve anything better. Indeed, the only objective metric they point to that measures things getting better or worse is GDP. And it's the one thing they want to reduce. That's the whole point to make the one objective measure of things getting better worse. It is illogical, self-refuting and contradictory. But because it appears in nature, it will be respected and it will be pointed to. When are we going to stop doing what doesn't work? Prices for energy continue to rise and governments around the world continue to demonise the one form of energy that is ubiquitous, cheap and reliable. Absurdly, so-called renewable energy relying on batteries is not renewable. No battery lasts forever. No solar panel or wind turbine lasts forever. Those things need replacing, and those things need massive resources to produce anyway. Again, as I mentioned in the main part of this podcast, what amount of batteries would be needed to power a major city like New York in the winter at night when the wind is not blowing? And how often do such batteries need to be replaced? What is their footprint? And what are the dangers? And what are the pollutants? I think we are right in the main not to be persuaded that solar energy is a good solution in many places. It simply cannot do what it needs to do for much of the day or year. Wind is similar. I am persuaded that one day fusion will be here to make all these discussions completely moot. But in the meantime, we can impoverish ourselves and moralise and frighten the children with stories of doom by saying how evil fossil fuels are, and implement policies to decommission mines and coal-fired power stations and restrict oil and gas exploration, and watch prices rise everywhere as we spend countless billions on unreliable, misnamed renewables, or we can use the cheapest, most reliable form of energy as we save the wealth to work on precisely things like fusion research, or very safe, traditional fission nuclear power. Or as I say, stick with coal. The catastrophizing is something we should be weary of. We should be done with it. There are many problems before us. Climate change is just one. Whether it is caused by man or caused by nature, it would be a problem we would want to mitigate anyway. The weather is something we want to protect ourselves from. The ocean is something we want to protect ourselves from. No amount of climate change mitigation or reduction in fossil fuels can prevent a tsunami when a continental plate shifts a little under the Pacific Ocean. No amount of taxation on oil and coal can prevent a supervolcano from erupting over the next decade or century, an event which would make all other present problems seem like minor traffic jams by comparison. And if we want to deal with future eruptions on a global scale or large tsunamis, we need more wealth and more energy. We might want to figure out ways to produce more concrete walls and much more resistant houses with material that coal is required at high volumes and high temperatures to smelt. There is not one major problem before us. Climate change is not the only problem in town. It's a problem, but it is a much worse problem that the media and governments and whole social movements are fixated upon it to the exclusion of all other possible problems. The next pandemic that's even worse, the next earthquake that causes massive destruction to a major city, the next terrorist state to get hold of nuclear weapons, or, as I like to say, the problem we are simply not aware of today and no one is even imagining. What cosmic or oceanic natural catastrophe is ahead of us that we don't know about? Well, we don't know about it. But if we want to know about it as soon as possible, we want people engaged in fundamental science and to be well-funded, and we want industry to be earning lots of money, being productive. In short, we want a lot more wealth, a lot more power, a lot more ability to transform the physical world around us so that it is resilient, safer, and able to respond to the unknown. We want a tradition of criticism that is even more dynamic and making more rapid progress than we are making today. We will know we have that, in just one sense, by having growth much faster than we have now. 
reducing regulations, lowering taxes, enabling people to choose which sources of energy they want to use, to allow a multifaceted approach to problem solving rather than a centrally controlled one fixated on a single problem. We want dynamism and agility and individual aspiration among people, not a cookie cutter approach focused on the evils of people and the impact they have on the environment. We need a people-centered approach to policy. We will make this world, the cosmos, better for people. Only we can do that. The natural environment is not made for us. The earth is barely survivable, barely suitable for human beings, barely hospitable to any life form. Only our technology, our structures, our energy, the way we construct the environment around us and transform physical reality into something better gives us any chance of occupying the infinite future. Anything that resists this and pushes in the other direction should be taken personally as a direct threat to liberty and life. This nature article is a threat to liberty, livelihoods and lives. It is anti-human, it is misguided. It is a deep error and misconception. The authors may mean well, but that does not mean all is well. It isn't. This is a policy to usher in catastrophe. Only one thing separates us from all those extinct civilizations that have come and gone before, our ability to continue to improve, to make progress and grow. Grow knowledge, grow technology and grow wealth. We cannot do these things in isolation. We need all three, knowledge, technology, and wealth. And ideally, we need more people to do all of that faster. The Earth is not our only home. The universe is. But if we want to ever explore the rest of it, we need to survive this first studio apartment that is this single planet we all share. And it's not a nice place. It's got broken windows and a dirty water supply and a dodgy air conditioning system. The solution is not to stop working and cease paying our bills. It's to treat the earth as a fixer-upper, a place to renovate. We need lots more wealth to do that. We should want to control the climate for us. We can upgrade eventually, but for now, let's not continue to pour scorn on those trying to make everything better here on this dirt pile of a planet. The scientists and entrepreneurs and others working on solutions and increasing knowledge and wealth, they need energy. We all need energy, and the cheaper it is, the better everything else becomes as progress moves more rapidly. The only thing that gets in the way of any of this at the moment, any of this rapid progress, is coercion and force. And the biggest source of force, the one entity claiming a monopoly on force, are the governments of the world. While there may be virtuous uses of forces at times, the pendulum is swinging too far too far to the left, lift the regulations, reduce the taxes, free up the reliable energy sources and get out of people's businesses. Strive for rapid growth and prosperity. If you want to increase well-being, this is the way to do it. This is not a lunatic libertarian idea. This is not crazy capitalism. It's simply logic and it's the ethical thing to do.